Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day I record them, go to petershift.locals.com and sign up. It only costs $5 a month. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Tommy John. Tommy John Apollo underwear keeps you up to 7 degrees cooler than cotton. With dozens of comfortable innovations, Tommy John will keep you looking and feeling cool all season long. Get 20% off right now at TommyJohn.com gold. Earlier today, the Federal Reserve increased interest rates. Of course, they had been promising to increase interest rates in June, and they delivered on that promise. Although up until a few days ago, the rate hike that everybody expected the Fed to deliver on was going to be 50 basis points. After all, the Fed had maintained that in both June and July, 50 basis points had already been decided. It was a done deal, and that's what the Fed was going to do. Well, then a lot of people started to criticize the Fed for boxing itself in to these 50 basis point rate hikes. And in fact, a couple of days ago, the rumors started flying around that they were going to surprise the markets by raising by 75 basis points or maybe even 100 basis points particularly in the aftermath of that hotter-than-expected CPI number, 8.6%, a new high, which put a nail in the coffin of the peak inflation scenario. And so these rumors started to circulate, but it was unclear the source of the rumors. After all, maybe the Federal Reserve leaked the rumor that it was going to hike by 75 basis points so the markets would kind of get prepared for it because the Fed doesn't actually like to surprise the markets. The Fed likes to deliver exactly what the markets expect because it's afraid of shocking the markets and doing something that the market doesn't expect. As much as the Fed claims it doesn't care what the markets do, it cares very much about what the markets do. And so it tries to craft what it does with the markets in mind. Although maybe the rumors were actually started in the market. Maybe some of these Wall Street banks actually thought the Fed needed to hike by 75 basis points. What they started to say was that the Fed needed to prove its inflation credibility, that its credibility was under question and it needed to do something big to kind of regain the upper hand to prove its chops when it comes to its willingness to fight inflation. And the way to do that would be the jack rates up by 75 basis points. In fact, there are a lot of people that were coming on television earlier today. I was watching Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful of Shark Tank, claiming that the Fed should go by 100 basis points to really show that it's got this inflation bull by the horns to regain some credibility. And that according to Mr. Wonderful, even if the Fed raised the Fed funds rate all the way up to 5%, it would still be bullish for stocks. The market would still go up. The economy would be strong because after all, on a historic basis, 5% is not that high. That historically, the economy did fine when rates for 5%. That historically, stock market did well with 5% interest rates. So if we did well in the past, there's no reason why we can't do well in the present. Well, maybe they should rename Mr. Wonderful Mr. Delusional because maybe Kevin O'Leary doesn't understand that we have so much more debt now than we had in the past. It's a whole different world. Just because the economy could survive 
5% interest rates when we had a relatively small amount of debt to service doesn't mean the economy can also survive 5% interest rates when we have a mountain of debt to service, both in the private and public sectors. But the bottom line was a lot of other people shared O'Leary's sentiment that the Fed needed to come out swinging. We needed to shock the markets with a bigger than expected rate hike. Although by this morning, the odds of a 75 basis point rate hike for today were about 95%. So clearly, the Fed was not in a position to shock the markets if it delivered on a hike that was a 95% probability. Now, if the Fed really wanted to shock the markets, they would have stuck to the 50 basis point hike they had originally promised or actually gone 100 basis points. Either one of those would have shocked the markets. Instead, the Fed decided to deliver the exact rate hike that markets now expected, which was 75 basis points. Now, it wasn't unanimous. There was one lone dissenter, Esther George. She only wanted a hike by 50 basis points, which I thought was significant because the dissent wasn't 100 basis points. It wasn't like there was somebody who wanted to be more hawkish. There was one member that wanted to be less hawkish. But nonetheless, this 75 basis point rate hike is the biggest interest rate hike in 28 years. So it's very rare that the Fed moves by 75 basis points. But the key benchmark rate is now between one and a half and one and three quarters. So after all these rate hikes, we're still below 2%. And in a world where you have 8.6% inflation, interest rates below 2% are still highly inflationary. And so the Fed remains behind the curve despite this rate hike. Inflation is going to get worse. It's not going to get better, although Powell is prepared to pretend that it will. And let me start off by mentioning what Powell said in his prepared remarks before he went on to take questions from the press. First, Powell had to explain why the Fed veered from its apparent commitment to go by 50 and 50 during the next couple of meetings. And even recently, last week, Powell was still defending the Fed's commitment to 50 basis point rate hikes. So the question was, why did the Fed change its mind? What changed its mind? And basically what Powell said was, hey, we told you guys that the 50 basis point rate hikes were based on the information that we had at the time, but that the Fed was always open to new data and we remain data dependent. And when we got this hotter than expected inflation number, when we at the Fed were surprised by the latest uptick in inflation, we realized that our prior commitment to 50 basis point rate hike wasn't enough. That in light of this new data that we didn't have back then, we have now adjusted what we had previously decided. And so now the committee feels it's more appropriate to raise by 75 basis points. And that is, in fact, what we did. And Powell also went on to reiterate his belief that despite the recent uptick in inflation to 8.6%, that inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. Now, I don't know where he's getting this information on expectations remaining well anchored. Certainly, the public doesn't expect inflation to stay anchored at 2%. The most recent numbers on long-term inflation expectations by the public were 3.3%. 
So that's quite a bit away from 2%. Now, I would agree bond market investors still expect inflation to be around 2%, not much more, if they're willing to loan money to the U.S. government at about 3.4% on a 30-year treasury. So I think in that respect, maybe the Fed is not too far off the mark, but I think both consumers and investors are wrong with these expectations, and those expectations are going to be adjusted upward as they're confronted with reality. But I want to spend more time talking about the Q&A because that's where you generally get some more information about what the Fed is thinking or how the Fed is lying. And that's generally where you get more market movement, although you initially you get a knee-jerk reaction. And the markets were all positive. All the major stock market indexes were higher ahead of the announcement. In fact, all of the world indexes were higher based on an emergency meeting called by the ECB to discuss problems in the credit market and with inflation. And apparently this emergency meeting created some optimism in Europe that the ECB was going to do something. You know, one of the problems in Europe is the spreads between government yields on, let's say, Italian debt and German government debt. The spreads are really widening out and for good reason, because the Italian government is basically insolvent. And if the ECB has to fight inflation and they have to call off their asset purchase program and start raising rates, well, there could be some defaults on Italian government debt, Greek government debt. The reason there haven't been defaults is because the ECB has been artificially suppressing interest rates by creating inflation. Well, now they're dealing with record inflation across Europe. And so the question is, how can the ECB stop creating inflation, yet also stop the spreads from widening between, let's say, Italian government debt and German government debt? They can't. And of course, one of the reasons that the Italian government has so much debt now and other governments is because of the ECB's asinine asset purchase program. Why did the European Central Bank want to buy all these government bonds from Italy and Greece to prevent interest rates from rising in those countries? Well, in preventing interest rates from rising, they also prevented the government from acting fiscally responsibly because they no longer had a reason to because they weren't being punished by rising interest rates. So had the ECB never enacted this asinine policy, maybe Italian or Greek politicians would have been forced to act responsibly sooner. But since the ECB let them off the hook, there's now more debt than ever before, which increases the probability that the only viable political way out is to exit the European Union and to go back to the drachma or to go back to the lira, which will be an even bigger disaster for the Italian people or the Greek people. But it may be the only way for the politicians to get reelected because the austerity that they would be enforced to impose now is going to be so much more draconian than what they would have had to impose earlier had the ECB not bought them so much time. And now they're going to pay dearly for that borrowed time. But I don't want to spend too much time on the ECB. Today, I want to talk most about the Federal Reserve and what happened at this press conference. But before I talk about what happened at the press conference, I want to point out the one thing that didn't happen, and that's not a single reporter blamed the Federal Reserve for having lit the inflation fire in the first place, nor did anyone point out that current monetary policy amounts to pouring gasoline on that fire. In answer to one of the questions about whether or not he felt boxed in, 
by his commitment to hike by 50. Powell claimed that one of the goals of the FOMC was to get interest rates into a normal range sooner. And so by going 75 basis points at this meeting, they were going to reach that goal sooner. Now, of course, the minute I heard Powell say this, what I'm thinking is, wait a minute, the Fed's goal is to get interest rates to a normal range? Well, why would we want to have interest rates in a normal range? After all, inflation is not in a normal range. Inflation is at a 40-year high. Inflation is anything but normal. It is extremely abnormal. We have very high inflation. And so if we have very high inflation, normal interest rates are not appropriate. Normal interest rates are much too low. If we have above normal inflation, we need above normal interest rates. In fact, if we have high inflation, we need interest rates that are even higher. So if inflation is 8.6, well, we need interest rates of maybe nine. Instead, they're not even two. So that's number one. The Fed should not have a goal of getting to normal interest rates. They should get to high interest rates, but not in the future, right now. If the economy needs high interest rates, it needs them today. It doesn't need them a year from now, two years from now. If you acknowledge that interest rates are too low, that interest rates are still artificially low and stimulative, and you acknowledge an inflation problem, you don't drag your feet in normalizing rates or moving rates from artificially low to appropriately high, you do it right away. You try as best you can to make up for lost ground. The time to move slow is over. Maybe the Fed could have moved slowly a couple of years ago had they acted preemptively, but they chose not to. They chose to try to put the genie back in the bottle after it was out. They didn't try to keep the genie from getting out of the bottle in the first place. They said that we're not going to do that. We're going to wait till the genie's out of the bottle because we're confident we can put it right back in. Well, they're not trying to put it back in, right? They're leaving it out there and hoping it kind of goes in all by itself. Now, shortly after Powell discussed the topic of normal interest rates, he was asked a question about neutral interest rates because the Fed often talks about achieving neutrality. And so Powell was asked where neutral was these days. How would he define it? And basically, Powell said that he thought that these days neutral is pretty low. So the Fed is not going to have to raise rates very much to get to neutral. And he talked about how over the last 10 years or so, the neutral rate has been, I don't know, pretty low, whatever it is, 2%-ish. And so there's not a long way for the Fed to go to get to neutral, and that eventually they may even be slightly above neutral, but that's where they're heading, which of course makes no sense because again, what was neutral in the past when inflation was under 2% is not neutral in the present when it's over 8% because neutrality is supposed to be an interest rate that is neither stimulative to the economy nor sedative to the economy. It's supposed to have no effect. Well, clearly an interest rate in a 2% inflation environment is going to have a very different effect if you have the same interest rate in an 8% inflation environment. And so clearly if 2% was neutral in the past, at a minimum, 8% would be neutral now, and we're not going to get anywhere near 8%, and so the Fed is not going to get anywhere near neutral. And if it's not even going to get neutral, let alone restrictive, what hope does it have of actually solving the inflation problem and returning the annual rate back down to 2%?
If you can't take the heat, then get out of your old stifling underwear. The only way to play it cool this summer is by wearing Tommy John's. Because when you wear Tommy John's, you're that much cooler. So you can do everything better thanks to breathable, lightweight fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands and with dozens of comfortable innovations. Tommy John's will keep you looking and feeling cooler all season long. From lounging at home to summertime fun. That's why Tommy John's doesn't have customers, they have fanatics. With over 17 million pairs sold. People love their Tommy John's underwear and loungewear. And Tommy John's doesn't just make you feel cooler, you actually are cooler. Stay up to 7 degrees cooler than cotton in Tommy John's Apollo underwear. Plus, there's no risk because you're covered with the Tommy John's best pair you've ever worn or it's free guarantee. My favorite part is the quick release horizontal fly. It's amazing that nobody thought of it sooner. So shop TommyJohns.com gold right now to get 20% off your first order. That's 20% off if you go right now to TommyJohn.com gold. That's TommyJohn.com gold. See their website for details. In response to another question, Powell tried to convince everybody how vigilant the Fed was going to be with respect to winning its inflation fight, that it said it wasn't going to declare victory quickly, that it was going to make certain that inflation was in fact coming down before it claimed victory. It wanted convincing evidence that inflation was coming down. And to me, that's kind of a cop-out. That's not really a legitimate victory because signs that inflation is coming down, what does that mean? I mean, that doesn't mean it's going to keep coming down. What Powell was saying is, hey, inflation's eight and a half. If it comes down to 5% and we're pretty sure it's going to keep coming down, well, maybe we'll declare victory. Why? If inflation is still 5%, it's still more than double 2%. I think what Powell would have to state if the Fed really was determined to make sure it eradicated inflation for good, it wouldn't be talking about any victory claims simply because inflation was headed down. They want to make sure that it is down and that it stays down. So what Powell should have said is we will not back off until not only inflation has returned to 2%, but that it stayed at 2% long enough so that we're convinced that it's going to stay down there and not go right back up. Because what happens if inflation's 8.5% and then it goes down to 5 or 4% and the Fed is, okay, great, it's going to go to 2 and it never hits 2. And the next thing you know, it goes up to 10. The Fed can't take any chances. But I think the Fed is already setting the markets up for a premature victory claim because I think the Fed knows it can't actually beat inflation, but it's hoping that maybe it can fool the markets into thinking that it beat it and it can pretend that it beat it by declaring victory even though a victory hadn't been won. Powell also got a question about the elusive soft landing. He was asked if he still believed a softish landing was possible, to which Powell said, yes, it's still possible. Now, he wouldn't put any probability as to whether he thinks it's likely that we're going to have a soft landing or a softish, meaning a bumpy landing, meaning a landing where the plane doesn't crash and blow up and everybody on board dies. He said, no, there's a chance that we could have some kind of softish landing, but he doesn't know how high the probability is. But he kind of defined a soft landing as inflation coming down to 2% by 2024 
meaning that it's still above 2% until then, meaning the high prices continue to get higher and the unemployment rate doesn't rise much above four and a half, or I think he threw something like that out as a sign of a good outcome that unemployment went up, but it didn't go up that much. And one of the reasons he thought that he'd be able to get rid of inflation so quickly was because he claimed that it's new, that we just got this inflation. It's not like it's been here for a long time. And so easy come, easy go. It just came around and now we're going to get rid of it. And the public doesn't expect it to continue because it's so new. And all of that is simply not true. And again, we have had inflation for a long time. It's just that the public wasn't complaining about it for a long time because it wasn't this extreme, but we still had it. And of course, when inflation was predominantly in financial assets, nobody complained. And of course, in the early days of this inflation, if you go back to 2008, 9, 10, the Fed created a lot of inflation, but what that did was prevent prices from falling, not really pushing prices up. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. If it wasn't for QE1 and QE2, the Great Recession would have been much greater and we actually would have seen a healthy decline in the cost of living and consumer prices. Why didn't that happen? Well, because the Federal Reserve printed all this money. In fact, I was listening to an interview on Kitco with economic professor Stephen Hankey. He's at John Hopkins. He's also a fellow at Cato. He's relatively good and he understands inflation. He knows it's about money supply. The only thing I disagreed with him about in that entire Kitco interview is when he was talking about QE1, 2, and 3 and why it wasn't inflationary because he correctly pointed out that the people who don't think all the money that we printed during COVID is the reason we have inflation. And they claim, well, we printed all this money after the 2008 financial crisis, and that didn't cause inflation. So that proves that money printing doesn't cause inflation, even though money printing is inflation. Stephen Hankey debunked that, but he didn't really debunk it in the right way. What Hankey said is that in order to have inflation, you have to have an increase in the money supply and credit, because a lot of the money comes into existence from bank credit. And he pointed out that during the Great Recession, private credit was contracting. And so even though the government was expanding the money supply, it was simply offsetting a contraction that was taking place in private credit. And as a result, we didn't have the big inflation because in aggregate, we didn't see the big credit expansion because the government was simply offsetting something that was being lost. But what Professor Hankey missed out on was the point that had the government not done that, prices would have gone down. The fact that they went up a little instead of going down a lot is still a lot of inflation. The public was still robbed of the benefit of lower prices 
by inflation, and that inflation still did damage to the underlying structure of the economy, and we're still paying the price of that damage now. So for some reason, Hanke overlooks that problem, but I'll overlook that because by and large, he's one of the few economic professors out there that's even close to being right. Although at this point, I seem to be veering a little bit off track. I want to get back to the one guy who never gets anything right, and that is Jerome Powell. Although he got one thing right, I guess, so I have to qualify that in the Q&A. He did mention that, in his opinion, the public doesn't like inflation. Now, maybe that's why he's Fed chairman, because he knows that the people don't like inflation. Well, you know, it doesn't take a genius to realize that, although apparently he thinks that people like 2% inflation much better than price stability, because his goal is 2% inflation. And for a while, he claimed that even though people don't like inflation, they also didn't like the absence of inflation. We didn't have enough inflation, and so he was going to deliver more. But now, all of a sudden, he realizes that people don't like inflation after all and maybe he should have left well enough alone. But he also pointed out that despite high inflation, the economy was good. Consumers were out there spending money. In fact, he specifically talked about air travel and he said, yes, ticket prices are way up, but look at the planes, they're all full. Now, maybe Powell doesn't understand why the planes are full. The airlines canceled a lot of flights. So fewer planes are actually in the air. So you have a reduction in capacity, and that's why the planes are full. It's not because more people are traveling. It's because fewer planes are flying, and those people that still can afford to travel are paying much higher prices for the privilege of doing it. Also, apart from trying to blame inflation on supply chain bottlenecks or shortages, he also tried to excuse the fact that America has inflation by pointing out that everybody has inflation, that this is a worldwide problem, so we can't really blame it on the Fed when they have inflation in Europe, we have inflation in Japan, but the problem is it's those foreign central banks that made the same mistakes as the Federal Reserve. So yes, there's an inflation problem in Europe. Yes, there's an inflation problem in Japan. There's inflation problems all around the world because central banks all around the world made the same mistakes as the Federal Reserve. In fact, the Federal Reserve may have been the lead and all the other central banks were following in their misguided footsteps. But I wanted to save the most ridiculous comment for last because somebody asked Powell if in his observation, consumers were in any way changing their overall habits in response to what the Fed has done or what's happening in the economy. Was he seeing any signs that consumers were tightening their belts and spending less? Now, an honest answer would have been, yes, of course, there's lots of signs because there are. There's signs everywhere that consumers are tightening their belts. First of all, look at all the stuff that is collapsing, starting with all the macroeconomic data that is abysmal. And I'm going to get into some of that in a little bit. And consumer confidence, which has collapsed to an all-time record low, savings that have collapsed to near record lows, GDP forecasts that keep ratcheting lower, and personal wealth that is evaporating. Look what's happened to the stock market. On my last podcast, I pointed out that we are now in a bear market in the S&P. We had a collapse in cryptocurrencies. Again, I'll get to more of that in a minute. But a lot of wealth has evaporated. And maybe the Fed doesn't remember. The goal of quantitative easing was to create economic growth through a wealth effect. 
The idea was if the Fed could make asset prices go up, well, people would be wealthier and they would spend more. Well, it must work in reverse. If asset prices are collapsing and people are less wealthy, doesn't it stand to reason that they're going to spend less? But not only are some aspects of personal finance collapsing, other aspects are surging, like the cost of food, the cost of energy, the cost of shelter. What about interest rates, which just got ratcheted up again? In fact, home mortgage rates now are at six and a quarter percent. They continue to go up. Credit card debt is at an all-time record high as credit card interest is surging. So consumers have seen their wealth wiped out at the same time their cost of living is going up. How could you say there's no evidence that consumers are going to be impacted by any of that and that they're not going to adjust their spending in consideration for what has just happened to their wealth and their cost of living? But Powell claims, no, there is no signs anywhere. There's no indication that anything bad is happening to the consumer and that consumer is going to change his habits at all based on what's happened. So number one, that is a lie. I mean, why even tell that lie? Why not just admit the obvious, especially since, and here is the bigger problem with what he said, the very goal of raising interest rates to fight inflation is to influence consumer behavior. You're trying to stop consumers from spending. You're trying to encourage them to save. You're trying to diminish demand along with supply so that prices would come down. So the very reason that Powell is raising rates is to influence consumer behavior. Yet Powell is claiming that there's absolutely no signs that any of the rate hikes have done anything to influence consumer behavior, that they're behaving exactly the same now as they were before rates were increased, which is an admission that the entire policy is a failure because he's not going to reduce inflation unless he reduces demand, and he's not going to do that unless he changes consumer behavior, and he claimed that he's doing no such thing. He said the economy is in great shape. He said there were no signs of a broader slowdown, which also means there's no signs that inflation is going to slow down either. And in fact, I want to look at some of the economic data that came out yesterday and earlier today that point to the very slowdown and change in behavior that Powell denies exists. And I'll start with the producer price index that came out yesterday. Now, that one was in line with expectations. They were looking for a 0.8% increase in the main number, and it went up 0.8%. And there was a slight downward revision to April, which was originally reported as up 05 It came in as up 08 And the year-over-year number was a little bit better than expected, although it was upwardly revised to the prior month. So overall, pretty bad. It was up 11% initially, the April number, and that was revised to up 11.5. And we ended up with 10.8 for May, which was slightly below the 11% that had been expected. But actually, the core month over month was hotter than expected, particularly with the revisions. It was originally reported that the April number was up 0.4. It was revised to up 1.1. That is a huge revision. And then the gain for May instead of 0.6 was 0.7. So that's a much hotter than expected core. And in fact, the year over year increase in the core CPI was 9.7. 
That was a big increase over the 8.8% that was originally reported for April, except that was revised up to 10%. That is a huge number, 10% double-digit core year-over-year inflation in producer prices. That is a hot number. And again, all this shows is consumer prices have more room to increase because the producers are yet to pass on the full extent of their rising costs to their customers. Those price hikes are already baked into the cake and pretty soon the customers are going to be eating it. In fact, it's going to be rubbed all over their faces and this is more bad news for the Fed and the economy. But we got more bad news on the economy itself this morning. Again, on the very day that Powell says there's no sign that there's a broad-based slowdown or that the consumers are changing their behavior, we got the retail sales numbers for May. The consensus was for an increase of 0.1, and that would have been a big drop from the 0.9 increase from April. Well, the April number was revised down from 0.9 to 0.7, and the May number came in minus, minus 0.3. So our drop in retail sales. And remember, they're not adjusted for inflation. So even though consumers are paying more, they're really buying less because the more expensive stuff they're buying, in aggregate, they bought less stuff because retail sales actually fell despite the fact that everything people are buying was more expensive. And then if you X out vehicles, it was a smaller than expected increase. They were looking for 0.7, we got 0.5. And once again, the prior month, was downwardly revised from up 0.6 to up 0.4. And if you take out vehicles and gas, the gain was just 0.1 versus expectations of a gain of 0.5. And last month's 1% increase was revised down to a 0.8% increase. So across the board, much weaker than expected data on retail sales. Then look at the hot number on import-export prices. Import prices not quite as bad, up 0.6% on the month, but export prices surged 2.8% on the month. Now you might think, well, who cares? We're exporting that stuff. We're not exporting all of it. Some of that stuff we export, we also sell domestically. So if our foreign customers are paying 2.8% more, so are our domestic customers. That doesn't include the cost of shipping. That's just the cost of the goods. Now on a year over year basis, Import prices were up 11.7%, while export prices shot up a record 18.9%. You're almost talking about a 19% year-over-year increase in the cost of making stuff in America that we end up exporting. Those numbers are more representative of what's actually happening to consumer prices in America than the CPI. Because the CPI is rigged, we know that, it has a false methodology, it understates prices for so many different reasons. These numbers are real. There's no hedonics, there's no substitution. Import-export prices are what they are. And if import prices are up 11.7 and export prices are up 18.9, the actual increase in the cost of living lies somewhere in between. Because all the stuff that we consume, it's either made here or made someplace else. So if you average those two out, you're going to get the actual CPI increase, which is basically what I've been saying. You just take the official number of 8.6 and double it, and that's the real rate of inflation, which means 
negative interest rates are actually much lower than we admit. We have negative rates, but it's actually a much bigger negative number because the real inflation rate is much higher than what the government claims. Therefore, the negative interest rates that bondholders are being paid are much lower. And then adding insult to injury, we got the June Empire State Manufacturing Index that was at minus 11.6 in May. And so there was a hope that we'd at least get a positive number in June. They were looking for positive 5.5, but we got another negative number, minus 1.2. So weakness in manufacturing, strength in prices, inflation is getting worse, not better, and the economy is getting weaker, as was confirmed by the Atlanta Fed, which revised their estimate for Q2 GDP today. And as I warned on my last podcast, I was certain that they were going to revise it down again. The last downward revision about a week and a half ago was from 1.2 to 0.9. And remember, back in early May, they were still looking for GDP growth above 2%. And also recall that in Q1, GDP contracted by 1.5%. And so if we had another quarter of negative GDP, we would officially be in a recession. And of course, nobody thinks a recession is anywhere in sight. I mean, maybe some people think that we might get a recession in 2023, but pretty much nobody believes that we're already in recession other than me, despite the fact that we had a negative print for one quarter and all we needed was the second quarter. Well, the Atlanta Fed, as I expected, revised its estimate down for that second quarter. And on my last podcast, I thought they would revise it to below 0.5. And they did. They revised it down to zero. So now the Atlanta Fed is predicting absolutely zero growth, a goose egg for the second quarter. So technically, if they're right, it won't be a recession. We would have dropped by one and a half percent in one quarter and then had zero growth in the next quarter. But that's going to feel like a recession, especially if you average the two quarters together and you get a negative number. But if you look at the rate with which their projections are being downwardly revised, not only does it look like Q2 could be a negative quarter, but it actually may be a bigger negative number than the one we got in Q1. And that means, of course, that we are in a recession right now. We've been in a recession since the beginning of Q1. And if we're already in a recession, imagine how much worse that recession is going to get as the Fed continues to raise interest rates, as rising prices continue to exact a toll on the consumer who now has to deal with the reverse wealth effect of watching their stock portfolios and their crypto portfolios crash. Of course, everybody is so convinced that we can't possibly have a recession now because unemployment is so low. Setting aside the fact that unemployment is a lagging indicator and a lot of these jobs can disappear very quickly, the reason that unemployment is typically associated with a recession is because when people lose their jobs, they tend to cut back on their spending. And that's normally because their unemployment checks are not nearly as high as their paychecks. Now, that wasn't the case during COVID, and that was one of the problems. So many people received more in unemployment than they earned in salary. But setting that aside, unemployed people spend less, and that bleeds into the GDP, and that leads to recession. 
Well, what's happening right now, even though people are still employed, they have to cut back on their spending because prices have risen so much. Effectively, inflation has given almost every American a huge pay cut because the actual cost of living is probably up 15 to 20 percent. Now, maybe your job, you've got a raise and you're making 5 to 10% more, but you still have a huge pay cut. And there are a lot of people who aren't employed, they're retired, they're living on a fixed income, so they didn't get a raise at all, but they had a big increase in their cost of living. So everybody has a pay cut, so now everybody has to cut back on their spending. Think about it this way. Let's say that 10% of the people lose their jobs and don't spend anything. But what happens if 100% of the people get a 10% pay cut? That decline in spending is the same thing as 10% of the people spending nothing, 100% of the people spending 10% less. So because inflation is effectively giving every worker a huge pay cut, even though these workers still have jobs, they're going to spend a lot less in real terms than they used to, and that can cause a recession. Even though unemployment is still low, spending can contract and you're in a recession. But it's not just higher prices taking a big bite out of people's paychecks. It's the fact that many of those people have now seen a big reduction in the value of their retirement savings because of the big drop in the stock market or maybe cryptocurrencies. And so now these people feel that since they've had such a big drop in the value of their retirement accounts, they now have to start making larger contributions to those accounts to make up for what they lost. Well, if they're going to contribute more, that means they have to save more. And that means they have to spend less. So that's another reason that a lot of people are going to cut back on their spending to rebuild their savings. And that also pushes the economy into recession. Of course, Powell isn't the only one making excuses for inflation and trying to blame it on other people. President Biden is doing the same thing as our other Democratic members of Congress, only they're not just blaming it on Putin anymore. They're really trying to blame domestic oil companies, ExxonMobil in particular. The president accused Exxon of making more profits than God. I mean, I don't even know that God makes any profits, but what's wrong with oil companies making a profit? I mean, it's a lot better than oil companies losing money because if you want more oil, where's it going to come from? It comes out of profits. Now the Democrats want to increase taxes. They want a new version of a windfall profit tax. Well, what is a profit tax going to do? It's going to diminish the money that oil companies have available to invest in more exploration and more drilling. And of course, if you threaten to take profits away anytime you reap them, then why take the risk? Because after all, there are times when the oil industry is losing a lot of money. You know, we never have calls to subsidize them. Hey, these oil companies are having these big losses. Maybe we should give them some government bailout money. How many people want to bail out ExxonMobil when oil prices were negative? I mean, how can you have a situation where it's heads you lose, tails the government wins, right? When Oil prices are low, you get stuck with the losses, but the minute they're high, the government wants to take away the profits. I mean, why does the government never want to take away the profits of the tech companies? I'm sure Apple makes a lot more money than ExxonMobil. I haven't looked at the statistics, but I'm sure they make some big profits. Why don't they ever want to take Apple's profits? Where's the windfall profit tax there? Why don't they talk about how Apple is gouging the customers by overcharging them for their iPhones? No, for some reason, Apple can charge whatever the market will bear for its product 
But if ExxonMobil wants to charge a market price, somehow it's gouging and we need to take away their profits. But probably the biggest hypocrisy when it comes to the president and what he's saying about Exxon and other oil companies, because he's also demanding that they produce more oil. He's saying they're too greedy to produce more oil. They want the price to stay high and they don't want to produce more. But of course, if they produced more, they'd sell more and they'd actually make more money. So the whole charge is ridiculous anyway. But why is Powell demanding that oil companies produce more oil when he campaigned on producing less oil? He's a big believer in climate change, in global warming, right? It's a systemic threat. He wants less fossil fuels. What the hell was the whole Green New Deal all about? The Green New Deal was about doing to ourselves what is already happening. See, The Green New Deal was about getting us to use less oil on purpose. Well, how about if we just use less oil because it's more expensive? Rising prices are doing exactly what the Democrats want. They should embrace it. If they really believe in climate change and the systemic risk and they want to save the world and they want us to use less oil, why are they demanding that the oil companies produce more? Why don't they leave well enough alone? Why don't they just take this gift and not look it in the mouth, right? It is exactly what they want because how do you get people to use less oil? Higher prices. If the price of gas goes up, people will use less gas. They won't drive their cars as often. Maybe they'll ride their bicycles. Maybe they'll carpool. Maybe they'll do something that's more energy efficient and that has a smaller carbon footprint. If you believe in the Green New Deal, this is great. It shows you that these guys are all a bunch of hypocrites because they wanted to promise the Green New Deal as long as it didn't cost anything. They talked about how we're going to transition from fossil fuels to these green fuels, but they never leveled with the American public that doing that was going to mean that oil and gas were going to be more expensive, right? They were promising all these great new jobs that would come if we just had less fossil fuels and we just transitioned away from oil and gas. Well, great. Well, why don't we let higher prices transition us away and we're going to get all these benefits? All this proves is that all that was a bunch of crap. These Democrats are full of shit. They want low prices. And the minute gas becomes expensive, forget about climate change, forget about the Green New Deal. All that is a bunch of platitudes. We never actually believe that anyway. There is no systemic threat. All we care about is that the voters are pissed off that they have to pay more for gas. And instead of saying, hey, but we're saving the planet, use less gas, what does the Biden administration want to do? Beat up the oil companies, produce more gas, produce more gas. Let me fly over to Saudi Arabia. Let me beg the Saudis to produce more gas. To hell with the planet, right? I've got Democrats that want to get reelected and the voters are pissed off because gas is expensive. And so we don't give a damn about the planet. We just want to bring down the cost of gas so we can get reelected. But anyway, now that I've talked about what the Fed did and what the Fed said was the reason for what they did, I want to talk a little bit about how the markets reacted to not only what the Fed did, but to what the Fed said they were going to do. And the markets didn't react very much, at least in the stock market. The Nasdaq, S&P, everything was higher, but not much higher than it was before we got the announcement because the market was already up in anticipation of this 75 basis point rate hike. Now, remember, the markets had tanked for the last several days also on anticipation 
of this very same hike. So it was a buy the rumor, sell the fact, except they bought the fact before the fact became a reality. They actually bought the rumor of the fact. But I think everybody was pretty much confident that a lot of the downside had already occurred as a result of this more aggressive Fed. And in fact, a lot of people were convincing themselves that this more aggressive Fed was actually bullish because it was going to show the Fed was serious about inflation. But I think the most significant reaction in the market, which might be a tell on what's going to happen going forward, was what happened in the foreign exchange market, in the bond market and to a lesser extent in the gold market, we saw a decisive move down in the dollar following Powell's press conference. In fact, it really started during the press conference. I think one of the comments that really set the markets off was when Powell kind of backed away from another 75 basis point rate hike next month. He said it could be 75 or it could be 50. So it's not 75, 75. That might've been a one-time thing. And in fact, Powell went out of his way to say, don't expect that large a rate hike to be common or a regular occurrence. So meaning that one time we did 75 and we're probably not gonna get it again. And I think that was interpreted correctly as a dovish tilt to this supposedly hawkish hike, and that resulted in the dollar weakening. In fact, the dollar index went off around the low of the day. It dropped about 65 to 104.873. The high earlier was 105.78, so a nice reversal in the dollar. Also, yields fell. In fact, earlier this morning, even one-year treasuries were above 3%. That happened for the first time yesterday when the entire curve from the one-year to the three-year was north of 3%. Well, today, following those statements, the one-year yield went back down to two spot eight six, And in fact, the yield curve steepened and the yield on the two, five, and 10 years dropped a lot more than the yields on the 30-year. Again, the steepening of the yield curve is more of a sign that investors worry about inflation and a recession rather than the Fed tightening. Also gold. I mean, gold actually finished higher than it was prior to the Fed's announcement. And the same thing with gold stocks, although I didn't think the move in gold was as big as the move in the dollar. But gold still had a nice gain on the day. It finished up about $26.1834. So we really held on to that 1800 support quite well. And I don't think there's much downside in the price of gold below 1800. Silver was also up 65 cents, 2167. What I think is actually happening right now with the perspective of the market is that the market is no longer worried that the Fed is going to have to get more hawkish, that inflation is high, the Fed is behind the curve, and now the Fed has to get real tough on inflation. It has to raise rates more than we thought because that's what was driving the markets. It was pushing up the dollar. It was pushing down bonds. It was suppressing gold and silver. I think the markets are now going to start to talk about the fact that maybe the Fed has overdone it. First, they were too late to the party when it comes to recognizing inflation and raising rates. Now the markets are going to start to think, wait a minute, maybe the 75 basis points was too much. Maybe they're wrong again. 
Maybe they underreacted before, but now they're overreacting to make up for it. They're going to start to look at all of this weak economic data and start to think that going forward, the Fed is going to have to start backtracking. The Fed is going to have to start surprising the markets in the other direction by being more dovish than what the markets expect because the economy is going to end up being much weaker than the Fed expects especially when it comes to employment. I think we're going to see a lot of job losses, and we may even start to see those job losses as early as the July jobs report, which we will have before the Fed's next meeting. And as far as the stock market is concerned, today's rally is likely just a one-day wonder, a bit of a relief rally on the buy the rumor, sell the fact Because if the Fed is, in fact, now getting serious about fighting inflation, as a lot of people were hoping for, there's that old saying, be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. Because if you're a stock market bull and you've been wishing for the Fed to get serious about inflation, well, if they are, then the market is going much lower. Because the worst thing that can happen to the stock market is a serious inflation fight. But as I said, I think the Fed is going to blink in this game of stock market chicken because as the stock market continues to go down and this bear market gets even more ferocious, when you add that on top of all the negative macroeconomic data, that's going to get even more negative as a result of falling stocks. But at some point, the Fed is going to pivot. The only question is, when are investors going to figure this out? Discover that the Fed is not actually serious about fighting inflation. It's just trying to create the false impression that it's serious. Because if it was serious, it would have already done a lot more. But the biggest beneficiary of that pivot is not going to be the stock market. It's going to be the gold market. It's going to be the foreign currency market. But I want to wrap up today's podcast by going over the continued carnage In the cryptocurrency space, this is a slow motion crash. And because the crash is happening in slow motion, there is no end in sight. There has been no blow off, no capitulation, despite how horrific the chart patterns are. And I have been talking about these chart patterns. I've been tweeting them out and people are oblivious and they continue to ride this slope of hope. Earlier this morning, Bitcoin got less than $100 away from 20,000 even. And Ethereum got less than $20 away from 1,000 even. Now remember, Bitcoin got as high last year as 69,000 and Ether was above 4,800. So to date, the declines are 70% for Bitcoin and 80% for Ether. Now, how can anything that claims to be a store of value or a safe haven be down 70% in such a short period of time? Now, as I am recording this podcast, Bitcoin has recovered. We're back above 22,000. It's about 22,200 as I'm recording. So that's about a 10% bounce from the lows. So Bitcoin kind of rallied off the lows along with everything else today. But if you put that rally in context, it's barely regained anything related to what it lost. And if you look at the technical picture for Bitcoin and Ethereum, it remains ugly. Now, Bitcoin did not go below 20,000 and Ethereum did not go below 1,000. Now, that's leading a lot of people to jump to the wrong conclusion 
that a bottom is in because they believe those key support levels of 20,000 and 1,000 held. I don't think so. I don't think there's any way we're going to have declines of that magnitude and not take out those even handles. Because, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of stops below 20,000 in Bitcoin and below 1,000 in Ether. If we're actually going to have a short-term bottom, I don't think that short-term bottom will be in until we take out 20,000 on Bitcoin and 1,000 on Ether. In fact, I think we have to take them out in a bit of a crash. I think there's going to be a lot of forced selling, uh, margin call related selling. I don't think we've had any of that. And I think we have to have that before we have a short-term bottom. Now, we're not going to have a long-term bottom. We may have a dead cat bounce, a bear market rally, but a long-term bottom is a long way away because ultimately, I think all these cryptos are going to approach zero, if not trade all the way down to zero. Now, as usual, in covering the crypto collapse, CNBC did everything they could to keep their viewers from jumping ship. In fact, not only did they encourage everybody to hold on, but they also encouraged people to buy more. And one way they did that was by bringing on one of the biggest Bitcoin pumpers on the network, Michael Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategy. And remember, he borrowed billions in order to buy Bitcoin, put Bitcoin on his company's balance sheet. And he encouraged everybody else to do the same thing. He had a big summit for CEOs when Bitcoin was 40 or 50,000 to try to encourage them to follow in his footsteps and put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. In fact, he's been going on CNBC and other networks urging people, regular people, to borrow money, to take out mortgages, home equity loans, lines of credit, to take out credit card debt and buy Bitcoin. And he was telling people to do this when Bitcoin was 50,000, 60,000, the worst advice you can ever give. And you would think if CNBC was actually an objective network, they would hold Michael Saylor accountable and say, hey, wait a minute, Michael, you were on our air. You were telling people to go into debt and load up on Bitcoin. In fact, you went into debt yourself. You bought a bunch of Bitcoin. In fact, Michael Saylor's average price for all the Bitcoin that MicroStrategy owns is over 30,000. It's somewhere between 30,000 and 31,000. When he was on CNBC this morning, Bitcoin was around 21,000. So he was down about $10,000 per Bitcoin, about a third since he invested $4 billion. He was down about one and a quarter billion. A lot of that money was borrowed. It was a disaster of an investment for MicroStrategy. And instead of questioning him about that, they simply gave him a podium to continue pumping Bitcoin. They gave him softballs, which he was able to easily hit. He was never challenged, especially when Michael Saylor actually had the chutzpah to brag about how good his investment in Bitcoin was for MicroStrategy. He said that that investment was the single best investment that he could have made, that it was the best thing he could have done, that there was no better investment that MicroStrategy could have made other than Bitcoin. Now, how could he say that when he's down by over 30%? Now, yes, there were worse investments that he could have made. There were stocks that went down 
by more than 30%, where there were cryptocurrencies that went down by more than 30%. So certainly he could have made worse investments, but there were plenty of investments that would have been better. I mean, he could have done nothing and that would have been better. He could have stayed in cash if he would have bought gold. I mean, gold was down a bit, but not nearly as much as Bitcoin. But of course he could have bought oil. Oil's way up. He could have bought copper, corn, wheat, soybeans, sugar, a lot of commodities he could have bought that would have gone up. There are a lot of stocks that he could have bought that didn't go down nearly as much as Bitcoin. How can the guy claim that not only was Bitcoin a good investment, despite the fact that he's down by 33%, but that it's the best investment he could have made? And more importantly, how can David Faber, I think, who was a CNBC guy who was interviewing, how can he sit back and let Michael Saylor lie on his air if it wasn't by design? They are bringing him on TV knowing he's going to lie. Why does CNBC let him lie? Because they're in bed with all these crypto companies that are their biggest advertisers. And of course, they also provide all of their guests. So they don't want their viewers to know the truth. So they continue to bring people like Michael Saylor out to lie. Now, the way Michael Saylor tried to justify his ridiculous claim that buying Bitcoin was the single best investment that MicroStrategy could have made with its money, he went back to the very first purchase and he said, based on when we started this journey and we made our first purchase of Bitcoin, Bitcoin is up by 60% since the first time we bought it. And that's better than the stock market. That's better than gold. It's been the best performing asset since our first buy. But the problem is he didn't buy just once. He bought many times. And if you average the price of all of his buys, he's down by 33%. He's not up by 60%. You can't cherry pick the buy that's ahead while ignoring the larger buys that are behind and the fact that overall you're losing money. And of course, one of the things that Michael Saylor doesn't admit is the reason that he was up on his first buy was because his second buy and his third buy and his fourth buy helped push up the price. See, as Michael Saylor was buying more Bitcoin, he was moving the market. And so he was making the value of the Bitcoin he bought originally, at least on paper, go up. So his own buying drove up the price of what he bought. It wasn't real. Meanwhile, nothing has been sold. So he can't count those chips while he's still at the table. He's got all this Bitcoin. And my guess is if he actually tried to unload the Bitcoin he has now, including the Bitcoin that he still holds at a profit, even those will be at a loss. And then the last thing he bragged about was the fact that he borrowed this money so cheap that he only has to pay 1.5% interest. And he's so glad that he borrowed this money while it was so cheap. But the problem is what he did with the cheap money after he borrowed it, he blew it on Bitcoin because that money is going to come due. Those aren't 30-year mortgages. I forget what the maturity is. Maybe it's another five years or something like that. But he's going to have to pay back the billions that he borrowed. And where's he going to get the money? Because the Bitcoin that he bought could be practically worthless by the time those loans mature. Mm -hmm.